that what we do here, um, that we usher you in so well that you just uh, pour out of this place to these people that need your salvation, um, like uh, 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 Kimberly's daughters, Natasha and Chuck's uh, uh, friend, um, Crystal, uh, just all of our kids, Lord, that, uh, that are floundering in this day and age. Uh, our son, Joshua, Lord, we, don't, we, uh, we know he's saved, Lord, but he just needs more of you to, uh, to, to just uh, not be in peril all the time. And that goes for all of our kids, Lord. Um, Lord, we would just pray for your power to leave here too, Lord, and, and touch all these bodies that are, that are sick and, and need recovery, need healing, Lord. Uh, Bob's cousin, Fran, Lord, uh, and uh, just uh, Kimberly and Connie, Lord, for their, uh, for their surgeries, and, and uh, Patty for her surgery, and, and Maribel for her, uh, for her thumb. Lord, just, I just pray that it's this, this building, this body, uh, that your power just pours out like a river, Lord, to all of these people. And we pray that we, uh, whatever we can do to draw them closer to you, Lord, that you just show us that. And right now, Lord, we just pray that you bless Patrick. Um, help him to be just the awesome minister of your word that we know that he is, Lord. And help every ear in this building uh, to, be to pay attention and to be turned towards you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Morning. Well, a man was walking through the wilderness and he became lost. Can't find his way and it's starting to get dark. He meets another man and he asks for help. Can you please help me find my way out? And the stranger says, I don't know what the way out of this place. I can't lead you or help you, but what I can do is walk alongside you. And perhaps together, we may find our way out. I believe that story embodies the message that I have for you today, which is one of compassion. Compassion cannot be done alone. Compassion is something that is done together in a community. As I reach out to you and you reach out to me and we reach out to one another, that walking the walk together is what compassion is all about. And I believe that God has, has given me, at least for now in, in, in my life, a unique ministry to be able to do something that I wish I would have had for 15 years of ministry at the church that I was pastoring at. And that is a, a confidence of knowing that if I was unable to fill a pulpit, that there would be somebody there that could fill in. I kind of look at my ministry as I see the Dodger hats out there, and I know why, right? The World Series starts in another couple of days. It's going to be exciting and fun. But, but I kind of look at, at my ministry. For those of you that might have followed the Dodgers for a while, I look at my ministry as kind of that of a Manny Moda. Manny Moda. Now, Manny Moda was known, and he really became most popular as what? The pinch hitter. The pinch hitter that you could put in there when you really needed it, and you just knew that he was going to come up with a, a game-winning hit there at the end. And I like to consider myself as like the Manny Moda of the pastoral ministry. Someone that can fill in at the last minute and hopefully hit a home run for you all when you need it. That's my prayer. 
And, and really, the ministry is, is focused on the aspect of compassion. When Ricky sent me an email this last week, it was Friday afternoon, and he explained his situation, said, could you please fill the pulpit on Sunday? I said, absolutely, I would. I just sent him a couple sentences back saying, please don't worry about the ministry. It will be taken care of here today, but go focus on your family and the other things that you need to focus on. Because I, I knew what it was like to be a pastor in a situation and be worrying about all these different things that you're trying to juggle and to have one less thing to worry about and to be able to know that the ministry would be covered and taken care of today would allow him then to focus on his family and the needs that he, that he has. And I believe that for me, see, the ministry is an act of compassion to be able to fill in in a time of need. And I believe that we all have those opportunities to reach out and be compassionate to one another. In fact, I believe that we ought to be compassionate because God is compassionate. And that's what I want to show today. I want to look at several passages where Jesus himself is moved by compassion. We serve a compassionate God, there's no doubt. And because we serve a compassionate God, I believe that compassion truly is a characteristic of a Christian heart. Now, there may be those who come and say, well, you know, an atheist could be compassionate and they can show well-being towards fellow human beings and that, but I understand compassion to be moved from an attribute of God. God is love. And if I love you, I'm going to be compassionate towards you. The fact that God is compassionate and compassion is an attribute of God, then it's much more than just being moved by emotion. Compassion for me is extending an attribute of God who I worship. And I believe that I am most like Christ when I act like him. If Christ is compassionate, then I need to be compassionate. And that is true for all Christians. So I want to begin by looking at a couple of definitions, because I think definitions are fun. I think they're important so that we know what it is that we're talking about. And for me, as a speech and debate coach, it's all about words and what they mean, isn't it? And how we use them effectively. Compassion, I believe, is a, is a desire to comfort and free others from their suffering. That desire to come alongside someone and comfort them in their time of need. And also to wish the best for them. Compassion is to kind of free you from the trouble that you're in. And if you feel an anxiety, say for example, an anxiety of filling the pulpit, I believe an act of compassion is coming alongside and saying, you know what, I'm here for you to do this. Don't worry about this. I want to free you from that anxiety and I got your back. That concept of I got your back is an act of compassion. I believe that God desires to free us from our suffering. That doesn't mean we don't suffer. But what it does mean is he's provided a way to free us from the ultimate suffering, which is complete separation from him for all eternity. And he provides that through the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, crucified on that cross. But I also want to take a look at the word empathy. Because I think there's a difference between being empathetic and being sympathetic. And empathy is the ability to understand and to share feelings with one another. So if I come alongside you and I understand what you're going through, then I'm being empathetic. But then we have to say, what does that word understand mean? Does it really mean to stand underneath someone? 
Does it mean to stand over somebody so that what you're understanding is underneath you? When I look at the word understand, there's actually a debate as to what that word meant originally. And what I have found is that it actually meant originally to stand among. I think that's interesting. So to understand something means to be among it, be within it, be a part of it. So if I'm to understand what you're going through, I need to be a part of what you're going through. And if you're to understand what I'm going through, you can't be isolated and separated. You, you have to be a part of the community and be a part of what I'm going through. We're going to find that God is empathetic in his understanding of what we're going through through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's through Christ that he comes and dwells among us, that he experiences what we're going through as human beings. And in that way, he can be most empathetic as one who understands because he's walked our walk with us. Sympathy, on the other hand, is a feeling of pity or sorrow for someone's misfortune. It's kind of like the situation is out there and I just kind of feel sorry for it. It's nothing I'm going to do to try to stop it. I just feel sympathy. I feel sorry. I may be grateful and thankful I'm not in your situation and I just kind of look away and move on. And you want to see how empathy and sympathy are two different things. And I prefer empathy as far as being compassionate towards my fellow human beings. They do, sure. I want to look at Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 as a demonstration of what it means for God to be empathetic towards us. Because Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 tells us that therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is our high priest who by coming to this earth in, in human form and took on human flesh, was able to go through much of what you and I experience even today. I had somebody one time come to me and say, well, I don't think God can understand somebody who's going through a divorce. And this person was going through a divorce and felt like God couldn't understand. And they said, well, how does Jesus understand? He was never even married. How could he understand what somebody's going through when they're going through a divorce? And I quickly pointed out that Jesus had 12 very close followers and several of them rebelled against him. Think about Judas. Thinking about Peter denying three times. Thinking about when Jesus is hanging on the cross, the only one mentioned in the Bible that, that at least for the, the male followers was the beloved, John, it leads us to question where the other ones were. You think God doesn't know what it's like to have somebody very close to him? rebel against him or walk away from him or not be there for him when he, he's in his time of need? So true, Jesus was not married and Jesus never went through a divorce. But false that he doesn't know what it means to, to, to have somebody that he's very close to walk away from him. We serve a high priest 
It, it is. Yeah, betrayal is the same any way you look at it, and that's the key. That, that, that Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like, the Bible says, to go through all types of sins, be tempted in every way, and yet he was without sin. And yet he knows what that temptation feels like. Can you imagine being 40 days in a wilderness and being extremely hungry and exhausted and tired, having spent some time alone just with the Father, and here comes Satan, doesn't he? Coming in to tempt him. Talk about being tempted in, in every way. And yet Jesus withstands that temptation and provides for us a great example of what it is to be tempted and yet not fall into that temptation. We serve a high priest who's been through a lot of what we've been through and can connect with us and empathize with us because he's been right there among us. We don't serve a God who's so far off just sitting there with his arms crossed, looking down and sympathizing. Oh, poor, pitiful, pitiful people. We don't, we don't serve a God like that. We serve a God who took on human flesh, shook our hands and gave us hugs and wept the tears because of his empathy and one that loves us very deeply. Matthew 9, 35-38 also explains Jesus' compassion for those who were suffering and going through a hard time. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the king, kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So you've got Jesus among these crowds of people. He sees that they're lost. They're lost sheep without a shepherd. And his desire is to reach out to them. But notice what he does. He contacts his small group of disciples. And he says, you go to them. You take care of them. The, 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 the workers are, are few, but the harvest is many. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out those workers to the field. There's so much work to be done. And yet there's so few who are willing or able to go out and do it. And I think that this prayer still extends to us to continue to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. God knows the opportunities there are to serve. He's asking you to be like Isaiah and raise your hand and say, here I am, Lord, send me. At this point in my ministry, I feel like this is where I'm at. Here I am, Lord, send me. Send me to Joy Christian Center on those weeks that they, that they need a pastor to be filled in. Send me in when they need that pinch hitter, right? Send me in to, to, to relieve the, the, the guy that's been there for a, a long, long time and it may be this new guy that you're going to have come in and he's going to be tired after two or three months, need a Sunday off, give me a call because I feel like that's my calling, that's my ministry, to, to be a fill-in pinch hitter. We know that the, the harvest is, is plentiful and the workers are few. And I'm here to serve the pastors. I believe God's given me that calling for now. Compassion is also extended to those who are lost. In the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6, 30-39, we have a powerful message of Jesus being moved 
by compassion. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him that they had done what they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not have time or a chance to eat. Now I've been in that situation. As a teacher, you better believe it. Lunch times, kids are coming in all the time for stuff. Prayer requests this, extra help for that, work on the speech tournament that's coming up. And I feel like I've come home many a days and my wife's making dinner. So are you hungry? I said, absolutely. I haven't eaten all day. I haven't had time to eat because these kids are all over me. They want help, help, help. And, and if you're ever in that situation where you've worked so hard through a day that you haven't even had time to eat, that's what the disciples are going through. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and let's go get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot for all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. There you go again. He's seeing the the crowds having compassion on them because he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And he is there to be their shepherd. Sometimes I have to look at my students that way, to be honest. They're kind of like lost sheep. And the reason why they're knocking on my door is because they feel some kind of a connection to me. And I need to be available for them in the time that I'm there. Sometimes you feel like when you get home and they're trying to chase you down, I could see what it's like to be in Jesus' situation. Let me have some time alone with my family. Let me have some time alone with my, with my disciples. And yet here they come, that crowd, still in the off hours, right? Whatever that means. In the off hours of ministry, I don't know that there are any off hours of ministry, but in the off hours of ministry, Jesus is trying to get some time alone, some quiet time with the disciples, and here comes the crowd, still following him. He's moved by compassion. By this time, though, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So it's, it's getting late. He knows it's got to be dinner time. And, and these guys, everybody in the crowd, they've, they've got to eat something. But notice what Jesus says. You give them something to eat. I'm not going to send them away to the village to go get something to eat. They've come here, and I'm telling you, my disciples, that it's your responsibility to feed all these people. Of course, they said to him, that would take more than a a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much money on bread and give it to them to eat? You could see how perplexed they were. Do I have to go to the village myself, spend a half a year's wage, buy a bunch of bread for people, and bring it back to them so that they can eat and hang out and listen to you continue teaching them? What are you asking of us? But here's where it comes. This is the most powerful message I've heard for a while. How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. But what do you have on you? When they found out, they said, we have five loaves and two fish. Not very much. Seven items to to feed 5,000 people. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups On the grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. 
Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. So he also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Can you imagine having a basket that Jesus gave you and you're reaching in here? That's weird. There's more in there. Here. How did that get in there? It's almost as though the resource is unlimited. But it was extremely limited just a moment ago. Five loaves and two fish. And yet as they're reaching into the basket and handing it out, where is this coming from? The source is Christ. His resources are unlimited. And if his resources are unlimited, he needs the workers to go out with his unlimited resources and do the dirty work of the feeding. What we have to realize is that the source is Christ that we tap into. That's our power line. His resources, God's resources are unlimited. And we're the workers going out and reaching into a basket here. We're surprised sometimes, aren't we, of where these resources are coming from. Because from our understanding, there's just five pieces of bread and two loaves of fish, or two, uh, two fish. And yet, we continue to reach in and continue to extend. I, I once heard a story of a, a girl who was a worship pastor. And she would lead songs, almost the same songs every Sunday. And it would seem to the congregation and to the pastor that that would get quite old. She would just continue singing a lot of these same songs over and over again. And yet, when she'd get, get up there and, and sing, she'd, she'd sing with a, with a heart that it was almost like she was singing these songs for the first time. Fresh and new every single time. And the pastor was perplexed. Came alongside the girl one time and said, how is it that you have so much passion in your singing of a lot of these same songs that you just continue to sing for years after years. How is this possible? And her response was that I serve an infinite God with unlimited resources. And every time I come to praise him, he offers me a unique experience. There's some reality to that. All it is is bread and fish but the resources, because the source is Christ, is unlimited. Sure, the workers are few and the harvest is, is many. There's a lot more work out there than there are people to do the work. But there's so much resource out there because of who we're tapping into, the person and work of the infinite God. We also see that repentance brings about God's compassion on people. Not only is he moved by their needs, but he's also moved by, by repentance. And in Matthew 18, 21 through 35, we, we see a parable here of the unmerciful servant that really hit me right between the eyes. You talk about God giving you a punch right there where you need it, right there in between the eyes where you need it to open your eyes and be able to see what's going on in your life. I tell you what, God's pointed out in my life enough hypocrisy for us all. 
for me to be able to confess my sin and say, okay, I need to fix this. I need to get this right in my own life. And for me, preaching is not just some stuff that I've learned in seminary that I've carried with me and I'm preaching you some head knowledge. But when I stand up here every Sunday, this is real stuff that I've gained from my life and applied to my life and I show you how I've struggled, what I've gone through, and some things that have worked for me. And preaching just becomes sharing the real stuff. But this message hit me right between the eyes and it gets very real. In Matthew 18, 21 through 35, we see that Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle an account with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, could you imagine that you're in such debt that everything that you own is going to be sold and your wife and your kids are going to be sold? You're not going to see your family anymore. I mean, everything you have, including your family, is going to be sold to repay this debt. I think that would be absolutely terrifying. You're going to lose everything. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. That's powerful. I mean, I owe you so much that I'm going to have to sell my wife and kids to be able to pay you back? pretty powerful stuff. That's a big, huge debt. And you imagine how you would feel if that debt was just completely forgiven. The master says, you're, you're clean. You're, you're good with me. I, I'm so moved by your, your response that I'm going to forgive everything and let you go. But here's where the hypocrisy comes in. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Powerful stuff. Because I know my sins... We sing the song, count your blessings, name them one by one. Sometimes it's count your sins, name them by the ton. Because we know how much that we've sinned against God. Whether it's an attitude of my heart, or whether it's things that I've said, or actual things that I've done. We know our sins are many, and we know that we've been forgiven. And when I come to prayer, I, I ask God to forgive my sins on a daily basis because I know I have daily things that need to be forgiven. But this one hit me right between the eyes. 
Because it's easy for me to hold grudges against those who have hurt me and those who have hurt my family. It's easy for me to hold a grudge. And it's easy for me to have, hold a grudge for a long period of time. I, I tend to have a long memory against those who have hurt me and my family. And I don't want to let go. I feel a sense of weakness in, in wanting to let go. But what God is telling me is, I've forgiven you of all of your sins, of all of your wrongdoings, of all of your negative attitudes that you've had towards people. I've forgiven you of those things. Why aren't you forgiving this one person of this one thing? I tell you what, I throw my hands up at this and beg forgiveness of God because I see this message pointing out my own personal hypocrisy. And how can I continue to come and say, Lord, forgive me of my debts until I have gone and forgiven my debtors? I think in the Lord's Prayer, that's a very clear message of forgiveness. There's also passages that Christ gives to continue. He says, before you come to the altar, what do you have to do? Go to your brother first. Forgive your brother first and then come to the altar prepared fully to worship me. There's enough in there in Scripture that point out to me my personal hypocrisies of not forgiving other people. But this one here of the unmerciful servant, I have to say that of all the characters in this story, I am able to connect in some ways with that unmerciful servant. But I pray that I'm not that unmerciful servant. I pray that I can identify those that have hurt me and forgive them 70 times 7 so that then I can be forgiven myself. So, so God certainly does show compassion on those who are compassionate and repent and come to him and confess. And those people hopefully will be people that are able to extend that compassion in an aspect of forgiveness and repentance to those people that they're interacting with. But God also brings compassion to those who exercise faith in him. And I think of Mark 1, 40 through 42, when Jesus heals a man with leprosy. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you were willing, can you make me clean? Jesus was filled with compassion. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now it wasn't necessarily the sickness that had Jesus all over this man with compassion, but it was the man's faith. Lord, are you willing? Are you willing to, are you willing to heal me? And Jesus says, based on that question, am I willing? Yes, I am willing. And he heals the man. Now, I think that God's compassion does reach out to those with faith. I don't think that that means that we always get what we're asking for. I certainly agree that it's thy will be done, not my will be done. I certainly think that uh, God is there to meet our needs, not our greeds. But there's an aspect here that Christ was moved with compassion because of this man's faith. And I think also there is an element of being compassionate towards those who are sick. And I remember when I was a kid that my, I was really young. I was a young kid when my church at Christmas time would go to the old people's homes, the convalescent homes where the old people were just so sick that they had to be in bed. And when I was really young, that would terrify me. 
Because the, the sicknesses that these people had for a young boy looked kind of scary. I mean, some of their sicknesses their, uh, would, would cause their, their, their hands to be uh, deformed or maybe they just utter things and yell things and cry things out that for a, a young boy was kind of scary. But every Christmas time we would go and we would sing Christmas songs and, and, and bring some joy to, to these older people who were sick. And there was one lady, I remember her name was Dixie. She was always a favorite that we would go and see, Dixie. It was Dixie there. But, but she sat there in a wheelchair, couldn't get up. Her, her hands were, were deformed. And, and she would just sit there with the biggest smile on her face. And she just, ah, I want to sing a song. Will you sing a song for me? And when we'd start singing, she would start singing with us. And then she'd say, can I sing a song for you? And we'd go sing Christmas songs for her. And then she'd say, but can I perform a song for you? There in her, in her wheelchair, sitting there with her deformities. Got the biggest smile on her face. And every time she would burst out as loud as she could in her version of Amazing Grace. Talk about touching your heart. But to, to see her desire to perform for us, I'll tell you what, as I grew up, I learned to love Dixie and to come alongside of her. And I would, she would always be one of my favorite people to go see in that home. We made a, uh, as a church, we made a personal connection with her, almost uh, adopted her. But then I do remember the sadness of going back one year and Dixie was no longer there. But the memories that I had, even the impact that she made in my life at such a young age, to be able to come now in my 40s and to be able to share a story about Dixie. Her ministry continued to make an impact on me. And yet what was it? It was a church that desired to reach out to the elderly and people who were sick. And even sick people have a way of ministering right back to you. That's compassion. When you think that you're going out and reaching out to somebody and they turn out to be the one blessing you. Isn't that amazing how God works? It's just amazing to me how that works. The, de the definition, though, of compassion really does involve human kindness as well as action and deeds. Because I could stand up here all day and talk about stories about Dixie, but it was going and actually being a part of that ministry there at the old people's home where the people were sick and being actively involved in their lives that was real, a real impact. I think about 1 John 3, 16 through 18. This is how we know what love is, John writes. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Man, if I have something that you need and I'm not willing to give it up for you, the Bible says that's not love. It's looking out and seeing somebody in need. Now, I remember my grandmother. She was great at this. She would always... Well, I'll just put it this way. Um, I knew 
my, my right hand would know what her left hand was doing every time she'd come up and hand me a crumpled $20 bill. Grandmothers have a way of doing that. They had $20, $40 crumpled in her hand, and she wouldn't say anything. She'd just walk right up to me and give me a hug and then put something like my, feel something in my pocket. Well, what's money going in my pocket, Grandma? And then sometime I reach in and try to hand it back to her, and she wouldn't take it. She said, that's not my money anymore. I gave it to you. But then I, I realized that I wasn't the only one receiving these blessings. No, she, she would identify a bunch of people out there that were receiving blessings. And one time I saw her hand somebody who was visiting our church some money. And I approached her. I said, well, what was that all about? She said, well, it's none of your business, first of all, who I give my money to. And she says, but if you really want to know, I just, I just want that man who was there to take his wife out to dinner one night because with his job situation, he can never go out on dates. He can never eat out. He can never spend any time alone with his wife. I was moved by compassion, saw a need, and I gave him some money so he could go spend a date night with his wife. Wow. But you have to be in tune to those things because this man was there in my church and I didn't know his need. I didn't know that he was in a situation that didn't have enough money to never go on a, on a date with his wife and I didn't reach into my pocket to do anything about it. But my grandmother knew because she was moved by compassion because she was, as I said before, what is empathy? What is understanding? It's being right there with the person. It might have been that I wasn't there with that particular man that came into church that day. I didn't know his need, so I couldn't meet it. But when you're with people in a community and you're experiencing life with them, you know their needs, and you're able to understand how to reach out and meet those needs. I want to close this morning with a story of something that impacted me that I will never forget as long as I live. You might not be able to tell by looking at me, but at one time I was the Maranatha High School assistant girls cross-country coach. Now that's a handful to say. That is not me. That is one of my star students, though. And I have to share this story of how I became this cross-country coach. I, I was in my, I think it would have been my second year teaching, and I was out jogging the streets of Sierra Madre just to stay in a little bit of shape after graduating from Biola. And the cross-country team was running past me. Now, not a play on words. This is real. I was jogging, and they were running. Okay? There is a difference between jogging and running. I was jogging just to stay in shape. They were running to prepare for competition, but they went past me. I don't think anything of it. I say hello to my students. I say hello to my colleague who's coaching the team, and we kind of go our separate ways, and I go home and shower. That's the end of it, right? But not necessarily. Because a month later, the girls' assistant cross-country coach, who was from APU, quit in the middle of the season. And they needed somebody to come and fill in that position. So who do they pick? They pick somebody that they think can run. Because they saw me jogging, they thought I could run, and they thought that I would be a good fit for that position. Okay? So, so you have to understand, when, when you're teaching at a small Christian school, sometimes you get picked to do these little jobs and things that you might not necessarily fully be prepared for, but somebody got to fill in those positions. I knew that I wasn't going to be a long-term cross-country coach. That wasn't for me. 
But I was there to, to fill in the rest of the year. And I went in and the rule was that you had to run with the students. <laughs> there are some schools where the cross-country coaches ride bikes, but that was not an option for us. We had to run with the students. There was one guy who was in one of those carts where you, you manipulate everything with your fingers and your hands and you're driving through and you're following the team along in the cart, but that was not an option for us. We had to run alongside the students. But we had one student that was a champion runner, and her name was Laura Myers. My freshman, or her freshman year was the year that I was the coach. So we're talking about a, a freshman girl, about 14 years old, that could outrun everybody. And, and it was the, the head coaches, John Rouse at the time, and Mark McCowan, who could keep up with this girl. But I have to be honest, barely. Okay? They, they were chasing down her dust. For me, I, I'm, they actually said, you need to go in the back with the slow girls so that we can keep up with this fast one. Thank you, Lord. Okay? So I was the caboose runner. I was completely fine with being the caboose runner. But to understand this story, they had won these championships all along. And finally, we make it to the biggest championship of the whole year. That's the state championship in Northern California. We bust up there, and we're hanging out, we're getting ready, and just finally the day has come. The other thing you need to know about a cross-country coach, two things that I found really significant about cross-country coaching, is that during a meet, we would identify before we would run, we would go the day before or the week before to the location, and we'd identify the course, because a student needs to know where they're going to run so they don't go off track and go in a different direction. And some of these... Uh, these uh, courses, uh, it's very difficult to know. Do I go left or do I go right? If you go right, you're in another city somewhere. If you go left, you're on the right course. So we want to track out the course for the girls so they know where to run. But the other thing is, in a tournament, we, the coaches, are actually identifying places where we can run to ahead of the girls and cheer them on. So we might run, sprint to the one-mile marker. And then, come on, girls, come on, let's go, 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 go. And then they all go past the one-mile marker. Then we got to go to the two-mile marker before they get there. And we are taking shortcuts and everything to get there. And so we're kind of cheering them along. That's something that you need to know. Okay? And the other thing that I'd want to know is that I just thought was fascinating about coaching cross-country that I have not experienced in any other sport is that you could know whether you were going to win before the tournament even started. Now, you say, how do you know that? Because in football, you can't know that. You might be gambling on the Dallas Cowboys tonight, but I wouldn't put too much money down on them because you just don't know. Any given Sunday, any team can win. We don't know who's going to win the World Series. Maybe the Dodgers, maybe the Red Sox, but you're not going to know for sure. But in cross country, you could almost know for sure because it was all based on the times. And if our top five girls had better times than the other school, then we knew before we went in that we were going to win. And the confidence of these coaches was just amazing. If everything goes as planned, we're going to win because our five girls beat their time by two minutes. So we've got this. That's kind of the, the idea. So here we make it to the, 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 the state championship game. This is the biggest running tournament of the year. It was the Thanksgiving weekend. So the Friday after Thanksgiving, we go up to Northern California and this tournament is on Saturday. Biggest tournament of the year. We see that the girls take off. 
and we go to the one-mile marker, and cheering, yeah, 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 go, 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 and Laura is just in front of everybody, eating everybody, cooking everybody. Everybody is eating her dust. She's way ahead. We go to the second-mile marker, and we're looking, where's Laura? We see the other team come. We see some of our girls come. We see some other teams coming, but no Laura. You think that Laura might have gone before us, but she didn't. Laura fell somewhere between that first marker and that second marker. And while we had seen one of our girls run past, we were waiting for our other girls to ask, where is Laura? And we didn't see any of our girls come. So the coach and I decided to walk the trail back to the one-mile marker. And on our way back, we saw the most amazing thing. The rest of our girls' team was carrying Laura, who had fallen and hurt in her leg. These girls no longer cared about their own score or about winning. When they saw their star girl fall, these are high school kids, by the way. They picked her up. And what I saw was the most amazing sight when you talk about a visual picture of compassion. Girls who individually no longer care about themselves, but they're reaching out and showing empathy, understanding of coming alongside the one who has fallen, picking her up and carrying her to the finish line. This is the best imagery that I have for what Christian compassion should look like in a church. Like a cross-country team, we are running a race of life to get to the finish line called death, which is really not a finish, but just running through the line to the other side. But along the way, we are running this race. And some of us are trying to run so fast to get there to first place. Others of us, we know we're just the caboose. But the reality is, we all fall and we stumble along the way, don't we? And we need the team to come alongside, pick each other up, and carry along the way. This is why I believe that every Christian needs to be a member of a church. Because if that girl would have fallen and not had a team, who knows how long she would have laid there hurt and injured. But because she had a team, a community of fellow Christians, to come alongside her and lift her up and carry her, this is the picture of what I see the church being like. To me, it was one of the most amazing sights because I saw Christian compassion being extended to somebody in need. It would have been very easy for some of those girls to say, oh, Laura fell, I'm going to show you then, I'm going to be the best. But they didn't. Laura fell, they said, we're going to come alongside her and help her finish this race. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for, again, another opportunity to step in and, and pinch hit in a time of need. Lord, I know for me that my ministry is certainly moved by compassion. Compassion for those that are in a situation where they need the pulpit filled and I'm available to to fill that need. Compassion, Lord, because I know that 
There are those who go through things that are personal struggles. And Lord, I pray that I have the empathy, not the sympathy, not the sympathy to stand far back and and look out to a situation happening, but an empathy to come alongside and actually really be a helping hand. Help us, Lord, to demonstrate true compassion. Not because it's some type of thing that we just do. We should be kind and we should be generous and we should be compassionate. But because compassion is ultimately, ultimately an aspect of you and your character, Lord. You show this through the work of Jesus Christ here on earth who came out of heaven, took on human flesh and experienced so much as we experience so that we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize, but we have one who's been tempted in every way as we are. And as you have come to this earth and demonstrated compassion towards us, so may we, on our way to heaven, demonstrate compassion to one another. And to those who have fallen, those who are hurting, may we reach down and pick them up. And in cases that they need to be carried, carry them as far as they need until they are healed and able to reach down, pick somebody else up, and carry them. That imagery of the cross-country team is certainly an imagery of the Christian church. May we walk hand in hand. May we walk side by side. May we recognize that we are one in the Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.